Hello and welcome to Stairway to ATJ, the CBA podcast that deals with all things access to justice. We see access to justice as encompassing all efforts to provide people the opportunity to use the justice system when they're in need of a legal remedy. I'm Anthony Pereira, a program coordinator for Metro Volunteer Lawyers, which is the pro bono arm of the DBA. And I'm Mia Kartnick, the Access to Justice Program Manager for the Colorado Bar Association. Today we're going to be discussing the history of access to justice, specifically in Colorado. First, let's take a listen to the Pro Bono Corner. The Pro Bono Corner gives you a chance to hear about pro bono opportunities and programs addressing access to justice issues from every corner of the state. If you would like to be featured or know of a program that should be featured, email us at atjpodcast at cobar.org. In this pro bono corner, we have with us Kathleen McCrohan from the Colorado Lawyers Committee. Kathleen, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yes, thank you. Um, yes, my name is Kathleen McCrohan. I'm the Associate Director at Colorado Lawyers Committee, and I have been with the Lawyers Committee for a little over five years now, and um, it's been a wonderful journey in my career, and every day is different, and that's what I love the most about my job. We are a very small office. It's myself, our executive director, Connie Talmadge, who has been with the committee for over 20 years, so that sort of tells you what an amazing organization we have going, if she's willing to stick it out for over 20 years, and, um, and, a, and an office manager, and um, what's wonderful about the Lawyers Committee is that we do all of our work through our volunteers. That's fantastic. So can you tell us a little bit more about the programs you have at Colorado Lawyers Committee? Sure. So the Colorado Lawyers Committee, it's a nonpartisan consortium of over 80 law firms, and they all exist in Colorado. So we're a Colorado-based organization, and we are a nonprofit. We're dedicated to creating and increasing opportunities for children, the poor, and other disadvantaged communities. And for over 43 years, we've focused on on major policy issues and systemic change through legal advocacy, negotiation, and litigation. So we do systemic change. Um, We don't focus so much on the individual. We do have clinics that do individual work, but um, collectively, we look at it as a systemic issue collectively, our clinics. And um, currently we have 29 active projects in the area of children's rights and education, civil and criminal law, poverty and public benefits, community development and immigration. And last year during crazy pandemic COVID times, we had an amazing year. Um, We had over 1000 volunteers contribute more than 7,700 hours. And that's, $3.57 million worth of time they donated to um, the community during a pandemic, mind you. So um, our work has not stopped and um, we're very thankful. We also have a young lawyers division. So we don't just have the 29 projects, active projects and clinics. We have a young lawyers division that is very active in the community and we have over 300 members currently and climbing. So um, we're very busy. Very exciting. 
So with numbers like that, um, where are you guys located and kind of what counties do you serve? Sure. So we are Denver based. Our office is um, downtown Denver, but we don't, it's not an open office for the community. It's just where we get all the work done. And we service the entire Colorado four corners. So we go corner to corner. Um, no county is, is too small for us to reach out to and help. So with over 29 projects to choose from, this might be a hard question, but can you share a recent success story? Absolutely. I know it's kind of like being a parent. You don't want to pick your favorite one, right? <laughs> but sometimes you do have a favorite. I would say, you know, over the past year, um, I'm going to, I'm going to give a shout out to several because our, our programs did not stop during COVID, during lockdown, even people were on zoom and trying to figure out how to get the help they need to others in the community. And they flipped the, the script and made programs virtual. So the first I'd like to mention is Denver Legal Night. That's typically an in-person clinic um, held at, at Centro San Juan Diego downtown twice, twice a month, first and third Wednesday of every month. And um, clients meet with volunteer lawyers and they discuss legal issues. And our team managed to create a virtual platform for this clinic in a matter of just a couple of weeks. And we've been going strong with the virtual format since um, April of 2020. And given the climate, it's not going to change for 2022. We'll continue virtually. And um, I'm, I'm very proud of that project and the amazing work they've been able to do virtually. Um, a few others to shout out. We, we have a nonprofit legal audit clinic that we were able to take from an in-person clinic to online using Zoom again. Uh, breakout rooms were fun to experiment with. But we figured it out, um, figured it out and helped a lot of um, small nonprofits along the way. Another program is our hate crimes education um, presentation where we go into schools and we um, teach seventh graders through 12th graders about the hate crime statute here in Colorado. And uh, obviously schools weren't open during the pandemic. So we had to figure out how can we get this message across to students? It's, it's so important, especially given what happened over the past year to keep spreading the message throughout the community. So um, again, they, our team was amazing. They got to work, they figured out how to use teams and, Zoom and Schoology, like just all the different online platforms, because guess what? No school's the same. So we had to figure out how to do this presentation online and several different platforms. Um, so I'm very proud of proud of that program and, and what they've been able to achieve so far. Um, and, and another shout out goes to the Colorado COVID Legal Relief Program, which um, developed out of the pandemic. We were called... Um, asked us to help small businesses because they saw that they were in crisis and we needed to do something to help. Um, so a team of so many wonderful brains came together virtually. We met once a week um, for the past year and a half to help struggling small businesses. And it's been very successful. Now that things are, are winding down, this program has transformed into a, a small business program through OEdit. And so small businesses will continue to get the help that they need through our volunteers. Um, it just doesn't have that COVID tag on it. 
Um, so yeah, we, we've been pretty busy and I'm very proud of those projects. I'm glad that um, you're helping out so many people. Um, and you mentioned that you're volunteer based and all these programs that you're talking about are volunteer based. So how do our listeners get involved with the Colorado Lawyers Committee? Great question. Uh, we have an amazing website that's full of information. It's targeted directly to our volunteers. It's not directed to the public. So um, it's coloradolawyerscommittee.org. And if you go online, you can search through our different task forces. And within those pages, you'll see ways to sign up for the email lists that we have that go out. Um, you can sign up to be a part of the clinics and you can be a part of any project that's going on or even social events. We do put on um, different events through our Young Lawyers Division um, and those are often highlighted on our website as well. It's very user-friendly. Um, there is also a tab for our staff. And if you ever have any specific questions and you don't feel like navigating through the website, you can reach out directly to myself. I'm listed on there or our executive director, Connie Talmadge. Great. Um, and do volunteers need any qualifications or experience to work with you guys? Great question. Often the answer is absolutely not. Um, we take law students, we take um, people that are even paralegals, depending on the project. I will say it's project specific. Immigration, we often say you probably should know a little bit about it, but we do also offer clinics and training for um, special, special areas like immigration. So you don't need any background knowledge because you'll be gaining it through the CLE. Um, but generally speaking, no, we have a lot of, um, we'll say business oriented um, lawyers who will reach out and say, hey, I want to help out with, you know, this criminal issue or, you know, immigration. And we, we encourage that if you have the passion for a certain area of law, and maybe it's not what you practice, but it's your passion, or you have, you know, a special needs child at home. And so that area is very near and dear to your heart. Uh, we welcome you um, to join our task forces and help the cause. Thank you, Kathleen, for your time today. We really appreciate you coming on and telling us all about the Colorado Lawyers Committee. Wonderful. Thank you for having us. All right. So we have a wonderful interview ahead of us on this episode of Stairway to ATJ. So the introductions are going to be a bit shorter, um, despite our guests being very accomplished and impacting access to justice throughout Colorado. So we have with us John Asher. John is the executive director of Colorado Legal Services. He has been with CLS, formerly CRLS, and the Legal Aid Society of Metro Denver since 1971. John attended both undergrad and law school at Harvard, but instead of joining an East Coast law firm, he headed to Greeley, Colorado, where he joined Colorado Rural Legal Services as a staff attorney. He found his calling serving low-income families with CRLS for nine years and then became uh, executive director of Colorado Legal Services. Colorado Legal Services now provides civil legal services to more than 10,000 low-income Coloradans annually through a network of at least 13 offices across the state. Next, I'd like to introduce you to Kath Sheen. She was the director of the Colorado Bar Association's local bar relations and access to justice department for over 20 years. She graduated from the University of Oregon Law School in 1980 
She is a member of both the Colorado and Oregon bars. Kath has written, presented, and taught nationally and internationally on topics including women and violence, mediation and family violence, and women in the law. We also have with us Penny Wagner. Penny is the coordinator of the Colorado Court Self-Help Centers, um, which helps pro se litigants statewide um, get access to service. Penny has been with the Colorado Courts for over 20 years. We really appreciate uh, Penny joining us today because of her position uh, disseminating uh, Sherlock information to all concerned parties, including Colorado Legal Services, as well as district administrators, and as well as the Colorado Bar Association. So thank you all of you for joining us today. We'd, we'd like to begin by asking um, a simple question to ask and a hard one to answer, um, but what does access to justice mean to you? Um, try and keep it to a sentence or two if possible. Um, short definitions are, are great for this part of the question. So we'll begin with you, Kath. What does access to justice mean to you? Oh, uh, access to justice has many facets and is woven into our culture. It starts with those who make the laws and the regulations, those who enforce it, who, who is allowed to participate in the system because of procedure or language or access uh, to experts, courts, lawyers, or others, and all their biases that go with that. So in true access to justice, there would be as much prevention of problems as solving of problems. John, what does access to justice mean to you? I think it means that when people face an issue with a legal aspect, that they get the help they need, whether they can pay for it or due to indigency or limited language or other challenges, uh, they are um, at a disadvantage without having the legal information, advice, or actual representation, uh, not that we're willing to provide, uh, but that they actually need. Penny, how, what does access to justice mean to you? Gosh, they took all the good answers. Um, the only thing I would like to add is for parties to understand the process from the very beginning to the very conclusion of their case, and also that all of the resources that they need um, are available for them to be heard in the court. Since we did brief bios today, let's take a minute to learn more about our guests in their own words and the work they're doing. John, let's start with you. How does Colorado Legal Services, or CLS, address access to justice issues, and what services does CLS provide? Let me um, uh, just clarify a couple of things that Anthony said. I really started uh, with Colorado Rural Legal Services the summer of 1971. So this past August, I uh, celebrated 50 years in legal aid in the state of Colorado. I did become director of the Legal Aid Society of Metropolitan Denver in um, late 1980 and remained there until 99 when the Legal Aid Society, the Pikes Peak, the Colorado Springs Pueblo, programs and Colorado Rural Legal Services consolidated into a single statewide program. Colorado Legal Services is the federally funded statewide provider of civil uh, legal aid. Uh, we provide a wide array of assistance from legal information, um, 
referrals to brief service and advice to full representation in all of the major areas of poverty law, including domestic violence and family law, uh, health and elder law, including access to essential medical care, uh, consumer protection and representation in debt collection uh, cases to housing, which is an increasingly important area, defending against evictions and foreclosures. Uh, we do it now with a staff of just over 120 people, about uh, 70 uh, plus lawyers. That's more than we've had in the recent past. Um, fewer certainly on a per capita basis than we did in the early 70s to um, uh, late 70s. So. Very, very comprehensive. Thank you, John. Um, so, Kath, how does the Bar Association promote access to justice? And can you talk a little bit about the most important policy efforts over the years? Sure. We have... Um Historically, um, I was hired as the Family Violence Program Coordinator um, after one of our members shot his wife and a bystander in downtown Denver. Um, after that, the, the program grew from focus on domestic violence and family violence into a full-blown access to justice uh, program. Started out with me. Now I think there's like 16 staff. Um, so we've, we've grown a lot. We've done things that include family violence and elder abuse and financial exploitation. And we've had grants and we've coordinated them within ourselves. We've had programs within the Bar Association, such as the Modern Law Practice Initiative, which works to help that 70% of people who do not qualify for legal services, but uh, do not feel that they have the, the resources to pay full-blown attorney's fees. Uh, we also have worked with other groups on their grants, such as the Access to Justice or the Justice for All grants with the uh, Access to Justice Commission and the courts. And we continue to help fund different initiatives. I know we're helping fund right now the uh, executive director for the Access to Justice Commission. And then we're in-house, we are working with the sections, the practice sections. Some of them have their own access to justice coordinators, such as uh, the housing, the real, real property section. So in this kind of, we, the bar is very involved and believes in access to justice. Leadership is very supportive of access to justice initiatives. So Penny, over to you. Can you tell us a little bit about your history and the history of supporting self-represented litigants in Colorado? Absolutely. In 2013, uh, the Colorado legislature provided us with a staff of 14 positions for, um, for our Sherlocks. A self-represented litigant coordinator is a national term that has been used across the country, and we just deemed that that was a little too much for us, a little too big a mouthful to try to remember. So the nickname uh, Sherlock was presented, and it stuck. Uh, the Sherlock program is known across the country. You can go to just about any state and mention Sherlock's in Colorado, and they are aware of who we are and what we do. Um, since that time, since 2013, we have increased in size to 44 across the state. 
We have at least one Sherlock in every district and self-help centers also in all the districts, 22 districts across the state. The primary role of a Sherlock is to provide um, support and information to litigants, uh, spending half their time doing that. When folks come into the self-help centers, they provide one-on-one service, um, also via email and telephone. The other half of their time, we recommend that they spend creating and developing resources, uh, tutorials. We worked, as Kath said, with uh, the Bar Association and CLS on a grant to create a number of uh, tutorials and videos that have been used with the SJI grant. Also, uh, flyers and brochures, uh, clinics, all that sort of thing. We encourage them to spend half their time doing that as well. And also, going out into the communities and developing collaborative relationships. That's a solid foundation of our program and what we do. When the Sherlock's were initially uh, introduced, a directive was created, Chief Justice Directive 1301, with the intent of being able to provide information and identify what court staff, including Sherlock's, can and cannot do The directive lists 25 things that we can do and nine that we cannot. Awesome. You mentioned SJI. Could you um, spell that out for us a little bit? Yes, the State Judicial Institute. Yeah, it's a grant that we um, worked on collaboratively with the Bar Association and Colorado Legal Services. All right, moving over to you, Kath. Can you tell us a little bit about the earliest efforts that you are aware of, of Colorado trying to improve access to justice? Well, I think John is going to be better at this than I than I am. Uh, but I do know that um, Denver Bar Association, and by the way, the uh, one thing I did not mention about access to justice in the bar is that local bars and and the CBA, the Colorado Bar, also have actually programs, um, pro bono programs that assist um, low income people. And the Denver Bar Association started the first one back Thursday night bar back. I, John, you can tell me when that actually started. It was 50, like 52 years ago because it's now morphed into the Metro Volunteer Lawyers Program. Um, and also in the 80s, there was every, or they tried, uh, the courts, and uh, the Bar Association tried to have local pro bono committees around the state. These morphed into the local access to justice committees um, in each judicial district now. So that's my background. But I know, as I say, John will have a lot more to say. Absolutely. Let's go to John right now, then. It's only because I'm older. Um, <laughs> and um, I think if you go back, the first recorded effort to provide representation to people without means started at the University of Denver Law School. Uh, It was then the Westminster School of Law in about 1904, as best I uh, can recollect. It was one of the, if not the very first clinical programs attached to a law school in the country uh, that uh, made um, Uh, representation available both through clinical staff and law students. Um, So that's about 120 years ago. That's not too bad. 
Uh, the Denver Bar Association Incorporated, uh, the Legal Aid Society of Denver then in 1925. Um, and it was small, focused on family law and evictions, uh, did some um, bankruptcy and debt collection work. Most of it was volunteer supported um, uh, with no public funding at all and a small staff. The program in Colorado Springs was formed by the El Paso County Bar in the 1950s. Colorado Rural uh, Legal Services was started with the federal grant in 1969. So it had existed serving most of the donut uh, around uh, the Front Range metropolitan areas. It started with offices in uh, Greeley, Grand Junction, Alamosa, and La Jolla, and then grew um, and now we have 13 offices scattered throughout the state, some large, some very small. The Colorado Bar uh, took a small grant from uh, what went through Denver Legal Aid in the early 80s to start uh, the contract and pro bono program in the 11 mountain counties going from Clear Creek to the Utah border and Craig. Um, uh, that came back uh, to uh, what was then the Legal Aid Society of Metropolitan Denver uh, some years later, and it's now an integrated part of our program, but had its roots uh, in the Colorado Bar Association. So we have a long and proud history not always fully successful, obviously, but of trying to expand resources for those in greatest need and the least ability to pay for the legal uh, advice and representation that they need. I will say that I appreciate the consolidation just for fewer initials to have to memorize, um, but it's good to have the full background. Yeah, the uh, Colorado Springs program at the time of consolidation was the Pikes Peak, Arkansas River uh, Valley Legal Aid, <laughs> and nobody could say that. They referred to it as Preparla, but the consolidation was absolutely necessary to reduce both the acronyms and the length of names. <laughs> so Penny, um, what was your first effort in promoting access to justice? So I've been with the ranch for 23 years, and um, it wasn't until 2013 when the legislature gave us funding for a self-help staff that the branch really started focusing on the area of providing um, resources and information to the public in civil cases, you know, in, in the civil arena. There's been always been a lot in criminal and continues to be a lot in criminal. But in 2013, that's when we really started the focus on providing uh, help to people um, in the civil arena. So I think we've all heard the quote um, from philosopher George Santa Anna that those who forget history are condemned to repeat it. What nuggets of Colorado access to justice history do we need to remember? Kath, let's start with you. I think the, the, biggest, the biggest thing we need to remember is how to collaborate. Um, no one group can do it all. And, you know, as 
if you look at my definition of access to justice, I mean, collaboration goes all the way back to who makes the laws, who's in, who's who's enforcing the laws. Um, as time goes on, this is hopefully getting better. Um, but I think collaboration is the one thing that um, there are so many groups wanting to help. Um, and I, this, uh, like, for instance, when all the eviction stuff came down um, and there was all this money coming down from the feds and we, you know, there was a group that came together. It included the courts, it in, uh, Penny, and uh, included uh, the Bar Association, included Justice Hart, it included CLS, um, Aaron Brinkman, is that his name? And uh, we came together and just started talking about and, oh, and, and the Eviction Defense Fund. Um, so we, we all came together talking about what are the issues, how do we go forward, how do we move forward. And it's that kind of collaboration that actually m makes a difference and makes things change. Penny, what nugget of history should we remember? Well, I would just like to, I would agree with Kath. Uh, when I started in 2013, it was Kath that brought me into the area of access to justice. And working with her, I have learned so much through the years. And one of the, one of our greatest strengths has been collaboration with the Bar Association and with Colorado Legal Services. We don't, and when I say we, I guess I'm speaking more specifically to things that I do and the programs that I um, work with, um, always have the connection and collaboration with with CLS and the CBA, because like Cass said, we come at it, we all come at it from different perspectives. And by having conversations and working together on issues and developing um, answers for that is much more successful than to try to do something independently. John, what should we remember from Colorado Access to Justice history? Well, I, I think it's if it's true that the moral arc of the universe bends toward justice, that's not inevitable. And it only moves in that direction if people of goodwill uh, keep pushing, sometimes collaboratively, sometimes institutionally, sometimes individually. And what we need to remember is that it's not a steady progression. There are steps forward, and then certainly recently, we've seen regression uh, in an, on a number of fronts from uh, income inequality and voting rights and just a sense of community. Uh, it's not a steady move forward, but it is in fits and starts and steps forward and step back. And uh, for example, until the mid-1960s, there was no right to a counsel in a criminal case. We're still waiting for a civil right to counsel, but I think uh, we need to remember that it is continued attention and fortitude and principled leadership that led to that right to counsel and will ultimately lead to a right to counsel in the most critical cases uh, in the civil arena as well. So with all these different efforts throughout history, there's always a dollar sign behind them. There's, funding is a big important part of access to justice. So I'm actually gonna stick with you, John, and how important is, um, 
How is this important access justice work funded? And how has that changed over the years? That's not a simple answer. Of course, <laughs> access to justice requires significant resources. Until the war on poverty in the mid-1960s, there was no federal and virtually no state funding uh, for civil legal assistance. It was all funded by United Ways and private philanthropy. Uh, but with the war on poverty and uh, the adoption of the uh, Economic Opportunity Act, which started OEO, uh, there was for a uh, number of years OEO funds, which started programs like Colorado Rural Legal Services with the grant in 1969. Uh, and there was an upward trend. There were a good number of disputes. Legal services um, has always been a political target of those who uh, don't want low-income people to have law. You know, I said in the mid-90s, the only thing less popular than a poor person is a poor person with a lawyer. Uh, and that has been uh, consistently true. There were major cuts in federal funding under the Reagan administration in the early 1980s that saw the beginning of uh, real state funding and IOLTA interest on lawyer trust account programs. Colorado's Coltaf program was started in 1983 uh, to supplement and to replace lost federal funding. Um, and that continued until the mid-1990s when another assault on federally and even state-funded uh, legal services resulted in increased attention by the courts to the need for lawyers. And that effort resulted in both philanthropic uh, attention, but also um, increased state funding for a while. It comes with a cost, of course, because low-income people's civil needs are not only self, uh, not only in the courts and a response to increased self-represented litigants, but denials, reductions, terminations of public benefits, Medicare, Medicaid, food stamps, uh, aid to the needy and disabled, on and on, those cases almost never reach the court. They are either administrative or even before that. Um, so low-income people have the need for information, advice, and representation well beyond those uh, disputes that wind up in court. So uh, the resources have never been adequate, never will be, uh, but they have ebbed and flowed and um, been very creative in responding uh, to the uh, times of uh, political assault and lost federal support for civil legal aid. Penny, do you have anything to add as far as the history of funding that you've seen? Uh, for Colorado uh, courts, all of our funding for the Sherlock's is through the court system. The initial funding was provided by the legislature and then has uh, since been absorbed within the local districts, within the local district budgets. How about Kath and, and the Bar Association's programs? 
Well, the Bar Association's program have, has definitely increased their funding. Um, as I said, we started out with me and, and two FTE at, at Metro Volunteer Lawyers. Now we have 16. I think we probably have nine FTE as far as just people um, working on clinics, et cetera. The, um, and then also the support for legal services and others. But, uh, you know, I want to echo what John's saying because, you know, funding is one thing. We had the, all this federal money come down um, when the pandemic hit. However, the way it was written, and uh, John can probably speak to this better than I, but the way the law was written, the requirements for the people to be able to actually access this fund, these funds, landlords or tenants, was onerous. And then they dumped it on a state that didn't have the infrastructure. So funding's one thing, but it's then it's another thing to make it practical and realistic. And how do you make that realistic um, and able to really help people? So we'd like to turn now to kind of see how does Colorado compare to other states and other countries? So Penny, let's start with you. What are other models for assisting pro se parties in other states and countries? And um, what kind of success are they having? Well, first, I'd like to say I'm just going to give a shout out to the Sherlock's again, because when we started our program, started building it, other courts started reaching out and uh, wanted to know what we were doing and why, why it was so successful. So there are a number of states across the country that have modeled our program, beginning with Illinois. Uh, Massachusetts has something similar to ours. And um, one of the connections that I started working with early on was New York, and they started the initial navigator program. They're, they have far, five models in the state for navigators, and that has kind of just spread throughout the country. Uh, navigators are being used in different um, fashions and facets across the country. One of the greatest resources that we have available is the SRLN, the Self-Represented Litigation Network. And uh, there are a lot of folks involved in that on a national and international level. We keep in great communication with each other and uh, have work groups and so on. So I would say there is a huge movement across the country in different areas and styles to meet the needs of the communities and the states that they're coming from, you know, based upon resources and funding and so on. Um, a lot of the folks that we work with across the country are housed within the courts. A lot of other ones are um, funded and run by legal service um, agencies. So it's great um, countrywide collaboration, as Kath spoke to earlier, um, working with others across the country and just learning and growing from each other and sharing resources. That's been really helpful and re really valuable to um, be able to learn from each other and not have to create the wheel every time we want to do something. It's nice that you can kind of just copy and that you're being copied both. Um, so, Kath, are there any policies or thought leaderships from other states that you find particularly intriguing? Well, I just want to take a shout out for our state. Uh, we're one of the few states that have local access to justice committees, which in many ways is, you know, the boots on the ground is where this happens. It's the, those lawyers in those areas. It's those courts. It's those that know what's happening um, and what needs to be done in their area. Um, part of the problem in Colorado is we do have funding issues regarding because of the Tabor Amendment, the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights Amendment. 
Um, and But we continue to collaborate. So when I look at other states and I see somebody like New York or California who has millions of dollars, Texas who has millions of dollars, we don't have that opportunity. And so I do see places that it would be wonderful to have these projects. Um, it's how we work within our legislative and funding system. And John, what do other states do for legal aid and how does Colorado compare? Well, I, uh, in some ways, Colorado, first of all, let me say the United States funds civil legal aid much, um, not nearly as generous as does Great Britain, European countries, Canada, Australia, uh, uh, other um, uh, both European and English speaking countries. We do not, I think, despite the constitution that says uh, to um, establish justice as one of its core values in the preamble, uh, we don't believe in adequately funding it. And I would disagree with um, um, uh, Kath just to the extent that uh, she says Colorado doesn't have the resources. I think it doesn't have the political will uh, to make justice a higher priority than it is. Colorado on some fronts does exceptionally well. Uh, the Sherlock's over the past eight, nine years um, is something that Colorado uh, can and should take great pride in. It has uh, served this, um, provide self-represented litigants with uh, valuable, important, and helpful information. It doesn't provide legal advice. It doesn't provide representation, and that continues uh, to be the biggest gap. Um, the Legal Aid Foundation of Colorado that raises money from the public, but mostly from lawyers and law firms, is a national model of doing it statewide, doing it with a separate board from Legal Aid. We ask Denver law firms to give $450 per lawyer per year, and over 50 firms really do that. And if you look at our, as it were, private fundraising, uh, we do uh, really much better than other similar uh, states and cities. You know, Boston, New York, Atlanta, Chicago, LA, San Francisco may do better, but except for those uh, cities with much bigger and more affluent legal communities, we do exceptionally well. We fall very short in part because of Tabor, but more because of choices that Colorado chooses to make on what it funds or more often what it doesn't fund. It's not just legal aid. We underfund higher education and early childhood education, healthcare, on and on, infrastructure and the like. Um, so um, unlike some resource starved states, Colorado has made a choice uh, despite relative affluence uh, not to fund important uh, public needs. Um, and I think we pay a price for that. Um, but um, uh, I think we can and need to continue uh, to try to do better on all of those fronts. So there are things we ought to take legitimate pride in, including 
uh, local committees, but uh, there certainly is work to be done uh, to increase uh, resources for justice uh, nationally and within the state of Colorado. So both you and Kath uh, mentioned Tabor. I know Tabor is very complicated, but John, could you briefly describe what Tabor is and why it's an impediment um, to legal funding? Well, Tabor is the Taxpayer Bill of Rights, which both limits a state's ability to increase spending uh, uh, over a percentage of population growth and inflation each year, but more importantly, it doesn't allow the state to keep any surplus, it has to be returned uh, to the taxpayers unless uh, there is a specific vote of the public to allow a locality, city, state uh, to retain those reserves. Sometimes the state does that, frequently uh, they don't. Uh, as I've said on other occasions, many states are fiscally irresponsible Colorado is the only state to mandate fiscal irresponsibility by constitutional amendment. And we adhere to it. It sounds reasonable uh, to limit the role of government, to allow the citizens to vote on tax increases and the retention of any surplus. And in fact, it paralyzes the state from doing what's needed. And, uh, uh, that's uh, a personal editorial uh, opinion, I suppose, uh, but it's widely held. It's not just my opinion. I don't know if you want more details, but that's a 30,000 uh, foot view of what Tabor is and what it limits. So looking forward into the future of access justice in Colorado. Um, so. Starting with you, Kath, what ideas and policies and topics do you see as pulling the legal profession into the future? Well, I think I was thinking about this a lot. And I actually, the um, IELTS, the Institute for the Amer Advancement of the American Legal System at DU, just came out with a report. And I was kind of looking at it this morning, too. But I think the the issues we're going we're gonna to have to tackle is basically an equity in inclusion type issues. I mean, if you look at all that's going on, um, it's become really evident now regarding, and it always has been, but it's come to the surface, that people, that not all people have access to justice. Not all people have access, not just to the courts, not just to lawyers, but they don't have access um, to the information, as Penny says, just, or as John says, just the information of how do you solve a problem. And um, the one thing that, they t that the, everybody's talking about is technology, the use of technology, but not everybody has, has uh, broadband. So that doesn't make, you know, so it's, I see in the future, we're going to look at more of a, and client sent, I mean, we're going to have to look who is, are, who are we helping? And I think that's where we've got to look. It's not about the lawyers. It's not about the judges. It's not about the courts. It's like, who are, who are we trying to help and how are, what problems are they trying to solve? It's like meeting the clients where they are. And John, what are CLS's goals and priorities going forward? Well, they're multiple. In terms of 
going forward, I think, increased attention to diversity and equity, both in how we staff, how we provide services, um, uh, how we connect to the community that we serve more effectively, uh, but also to be part of a move to expand the pool of providers of legal information and advice. The Colorado Supreme Court now has a committee that's exploring licensure of paralegals who will be able to provide help, at least in filling out forms and providing legal advice in family law cases. I heard, well, I read uh, a quote from um, the Dean of Duke Law School a number of years ago who said that the legal profession cannot maintain a monopoly on services it doesn't provide. Uh, and um, I think we cannot hold on to the notion that only lawyers with a law degree and bar passage can provide a competent quality legal advice and we need to make that pools, not only of Sherlock's providing information, but paraprofessionals and other professionals to meet the legal needs of average citizens, not just low income uh, people. Um, but that's a real challenge. And John, you mentioned er Sherlock's, so let's go to Penny. Um, what kind of goals do you have for the Sherlock's going forward? You know, I'm really looking forward to the future because we have really worked on expanding collaboration with other organizations, not only with either including attorneys, but um, with local agencies um, across the state. So several of my goals are to host a Legal Resource Day event in every district during Pro Bono Week. Before the pandemic, we were up to 14 districts, and my goal is, before I retire, is to have one in every district. Um, that's kind of the showcase of what we do in a number of ways. It provides um, information to folks locally that can come in and um, uh, do sessions, um, talk to attorneys that are providing legal advice, and those go on all over the state. So it creates an awareness to the community of the connection that we have with, um, with our communities, and also it really strengthens our relationships with attorneys. And as a result of the pandemic, we had to kind of shift in that regard on having them um, in person to a virtual, virtual clinics. Uh, attorneys are thrilled because they can participate in um, clinics and Legal Resource Day all over the state from their living room or from their office and still provide the same service. So that's one of my huge um, goals upcoming. And Kath touched on it a bit um, to also provide more virtual help on a broader scale. So the courts are really working on that, helping with the broadband issues within our courthouses and also providing um, the equipment for folks that come into the courthouse uh, to be able to use to help you know, solve some of their issues in regards to forms and so on. And uh, one of the strongest things is to continue the strong collaboration we have with the Bar Association and with Colorado Legal Services and other legal service providers. I think a lot of the successes that we have had through the years has been a result of those collaborations.
Um, Penny, let's come back to you. What gives you hope and uh, makes you optimistic about the future of access to justice work in Colorado? Well, Mia, if you've ever met any of our Sherlocks, that, that'll give you just a, <laughs> just an answer right there. Um, they have so much energy and are so dedicated to what they do within their communities. So when we, when we started the program, we uh, said, okay, go and, you know, develop your own program because we started with a clean slate. And it's amazing to me what they do within their communities the, uh, the help and service they provide, not only inside the courthouse, but also outside the courthouse, and the ingenuity and creativity. Like I said, when, when the pandemic hit, we were kind of at a loss, a standstill, and we came together as a group and developed a number of ways that we could continue to help. So they always energize me and excite me with the things that they do. Um, also, I'm also excited about the additional stakeholders that have come in to working on access to justice issues. When I began, it was my connection was Kath from the bar and Molly French from Colorado Legal Services. And we met on a regular basis and have for a number of years. And now we've got all kinds of other folks coming in. Um, we've expanded during the um, eviction crisis that we've had. We're now connecting with DOLA. Uh, and other agencies that are providing um, information and help to uh, for rental assistance, and also, you know, dipping our toe in the area of um, um, medical services, medical providers, to kind of really focus on creating a more holistic approach to helping folks in need. Penny, you said DOLA. What does that stand for? Is this a test? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's the Department, Department of Local Affairs. Yes. It's the state department that has been uh, given the responsibility for getting or doling out its uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> rental assistance to tenants and landlords. And it had never run a program like that. I mean, I think there are huge inadequacies in what they're doing. And in many ways, I'm surprised they're doing as well as they are having had no infrastructure, staff, or experience in running a program of this magnitude. That's right, John. And we have connected with a director that's developing that program, is very amicable to access to justice and um, going into the future, working on other areas that can help in the area of access to justice. So that has been a huge connection for our uh, existing group of stakeholders to add to the fold. So, John, let's, uh, let's hear about what gives you hope for the future well, of this work. First, let me, uh, we've heard a lot about collaboration. I, people will tell you I can find a dark lining in any silver cloud. <laughs> um, and while uh, it's absolutely true, we've done a terrific job of collaborating, I believe it's been in a relatively small legal and governmental arena. I think the challenge to us in access to justice is being more effective in reaching out to the faith community and the business community and local community leaders, uh, making sure they're aware of uh, access to justice issues and the availability of legal aid. I think most people support legal aid, but it still is a secret or unknown 
service to all too many people. And I think we can do a much better job. I think the um, hope for the future is to maintain and grow a diverse uh, staff of dedicated, passionate advocates for low-income people, some with great experience and to retain them and have an organization and a legal community that supports their development and professional growth, but also supports the work they do, but also bringing in passionate young advocates to pick up uh, the torch and to carry the work of Kath, Penny, myself uh, forward into the future. And we see not as many applicants for our jobs as we would like, too few willing to go to rural areas, but nonetheless, a steady stream of passionate, skillful, qualified advocates are ready to do the important work that we have each dedicated our professional lives to. And Casper, what gives you hope? Well, I'm just gonna say ditto. I mean, it's like, what I agree with John. It's like, it has been a narrow legal focus group um, in the collaboration mode. And um, John, you took the words right out of my mouth. The um, medical community, the, the business community, the faith community, we all, we need to, for them to understand the real um, benefit uh, to have adequate access to justice in, in all arenas. And I also see my, I'm also the hope that I see, I see different people stepping up, a wide variety of people from different backgrounds, stepping into the legislature, stepping into the legal profession, um, it that that and I do see, like John, some really young, passionate young people that I think can take this to a whole new level. So that that gives me a lot of hope, including the two people that are in that are doing this podcast. You're too kind, Kath. Um, so. Despite all the harm and hardships COVID has caused, um, it's also caused us to innovate in many ways. So this question is kind of in two parts. How has COVID affected uh, access to justice efforts? And also how unique of a challenge has this been um, in your experience? We'll start with you, Penny. It's been a really uh, difficult challenge, Anthony, for the courts. Uh, just the uncertainty of being open or being closed. You know, we get that question in our office a lot, especially, you know, during 20, um, 2020. Is the court open? Is it closed? And we couldn't keep track. Uh, it was it was all based upon, uh, what, you know, what was going on and, and how bad, you know, cases were and so on and so forth. So we could tell people, well, this court is open when in fact they're not or vice versa. So that was a tremendous challenge and continues to be so even today keeping track of, of courts, um, you know, that are open and those that are not. And it was, so it was very difficult for people to access the courts. Huge problem. How do we deal with that? So one of the uh, things that we started working on was virt virtual hearings. We've talked about those for years, but that kind of forced us into that. Virtual hearings are very helpful, but they're just one tool in this, in this huge problem that, you know, that we deal with. So... That, that was probably the most for us is, you know, when courts can be open and, and people having access. 
So, Kath, tell me a little about how COVID, how you've seen COVID impact access to justice. Well, in the clinics that we, the clinics and pro bono programs that we ran, uh, that we do run, the we we actually had to shift uh, from having in person at the courthouse clinics, et cetera, to where um, to virtual, either on Zoom, telephone calls. Actually, found that many of that many lawyers and litigants preferred that that they didn't have to come downtown and find a place to park or find um, place to uh, for their kids or or whatever. So, in a good sense, that kind of pushed us like virtual hearings. It kind of pushed us in the direction of providing a, another level of service. Um, there were some areas of law, and I, I hope John speaks to this, that probably were not served well. The family law arena, I assume, I don't know if it's, I've been retired for a few months, so I assume it still is not caught up. Um, all those family law cases that, you know, civil cases are not, do not have a timeline, so they probably are still lingering in the court system. There's probably others that are still lingering. So, um, and then all the, the evictions. There was just a lot of, on the very, on the boots on the ground level. Um, people tried really hard to provide service, but it was, they had to innovate. That was, that was for sure. Absolutely. John, tell me a little bit about COVID and CLS and how it's impacted access to justice. Well, internally um, on March 20th, 2020, we went from an all-in-office, um, uh, hands-on provider of civil legal assistance to having to equip all staff to work with myself included, not a very sophisticated techie, but within a week, our small but mighty tech staff, led by Molly French, who Penny uh, mentioned, our uh, manager of technology, uh, really got all of us set up with hotspots, with laptops. It was both an investment and we had some uh, um, CARES Act resources to make it possible uh, to allow uh, all staff to work safely and from home, but to continue to provide service. Um, um, I can't say it wasn't somewhat disruptive. Uh, and a challenge to hire staff on Zoom, to orient and onboard staff without doing it in person. We had new staff who have only been to their office to pick up a laptop and credit. I mean, making people, particularly new staff, but all staff feel part of an institution and organization uh, while being on Zoom or Teams or WebEx most of the day um, uh, is a challenge and to equip ourselves to get documents, to remotely sign documents, to get remote notary. I mean, it was um, not without its challenges. On the other hand, we did it surprisingly well and continue to provide service to a large number of people. The courts uh, were a challenge because each of the 64 county courts which hear evictions, debt collection cases uh, were uh, to begin with struggling, but then um, 
As Cass said, many people were able to access the courts because they didn't need to take a full day off work, didn't need childcare or transportation. On the other hand, counties, some counties continued to hold some hearings in person. Others did absolutely none. Keeping up with that, a variety of approaches, as Penny said, was a real challenge. So it had many positive things. I think there are things we ought to retain. I think there are challenges with broadband language access for older people, just the ability to use smartphones in a new and more complicated way, if not having access to computers. Some people um, will still lack transportation and the extent to which some courts will retain the best of uh, what we learned in the past 18 months is still uncertain. Not too long ago, I heard the Chief Justice of the Texas Supreme Court, Nathan Hecht, on a panel, he said the courts had changed more in the prior year than they had in the past hundred years. Um, and that's probably close to true. And we need to continue to work on the imperfections of remote uh, hearings and um, uh, to keep uh, the best of it, uh, but to use this as an opportunity uh, to learn and to move smartly into a different but more client-friendly future. Well, I think we just heard some success stories, but we always finish up um, with a request for success stories. So, Kath, can you tell us about a success you've had? I was thinking about this, and one of the one of the biggest big successes. Uh, well, oh, I have all kinds, but anyway. <laughs> Um, Hard to narrow it down. That's right. That's right. But I was thinking about, okay, what, since we, since Penny and I have focused a little bit on collaboration, one of the things that we were able to do, and CLS was part of it, the courts were part of it, and the bar was part of it, we worked with the Division of Criminal Justice and the Victims Programs when a large uh, pot of money was released um, from the Victims of Crime Act on the federal level. And we were able to get uh, fellowships for newly for uh, newly um, lawyers, new lawyers, and they were able to provide uh, assistance in domestic violence um, for domestic violence victims in civil area. This is an area that, having been working in the domestic violence arena since uh, 1984, um, anyways, for a long time that had always been an issue. And so <clears throat> for us to be able to work together and provide these fellowships, and right now we have one at Metro Volunteer Lawyers. Oh, John, will you share a success story with us from your career? Well, you know, to ask somebody to pick one out of 50 years is hardly fair. <laughs> the, um, I think of staff we've hired who have gone on to be mayors and district attorneys. I've thought of cases we've won in the U.S. and Colorado Supreme Court. But in terms of access to justice, I think um, the success um, that most people will never hear about, never should hear about, were a couple of meetings with then Chief Justice Mary Malarkey uh, of the Colorado Supreme Court, 
about the difficulty pro bono and legal aid lawyers face with 64 counties using their own forms, their own instructions, and that the state Supreme Court ought to have mandated statewide forms uh, that each court at least had to accept and to have uniform instructions. And she pushed back and said, well, the chief judges won't like it, the clerks uh, won't like it, some charge for their forms, some don't. And I said, Chief Justice, you're absolutely right. They won't like it and they'll get over it. And ultimately, uh, she, to her credit, took the leap, mandated statewide forms that we now just accept as uh, something that is just the way things are. Well, it's not the way things were. So I need absolutely no credit and uh, don't think um, uh, that needs any attention at all, but in a small way that probably did more to advance access to justice within the court system as any case I want, any staff we hired and supported, um, any work that we have done, all of which are important, but probably none more than that. That is a great story. I thought that's just the way things were, but or things are, but that's not how they were. So that's great. Penny, can you share a success story as well? Boy, I'm just going to add on to what John has said. He kind of started the ball rolling. And one of the things that uh, is still a work in progress is converting those wonderful forms that were created uh, initially for um, litigants to use. Uh, and, but they were all written in legalese, and that has been a huge challenge. I think we'd all agree with that. So w what we're doing, um, the work in progress, is starting to convert those into plain language. So, you know, between fifth and seventh grade levels, so all parties can, uh, can use those. We will continue to maintain them um, in the legalese format, and attorneys can continue to uh, create their own forms, but we want to get, that. that's part of the process of people understanding the system and knowing what they're doing. So that has been really exciting. It has been really challenging. John talked about the challenge of the courts and others not um, wanting to have standard forms. Well, we're, we're facing that all over again in the area of plain language, but we're pushing forward. You know, well, lawyers you. think that plain language is translating Latin into complex English. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, I'd like to thank you all for joining us today. Thank you, Kath. Thank you, Penny. Thank you, John. We really appreciate that. Your insight has been educational for me, and I know it'll be for our listeners as well. So thank you so much. Thank you. We at Stairway to ATJ would like to thank Kathleen McCrohan from Colorado Lawyers Committee, Kath Schoen from the Colorado Bar Association, Penny Wagner from the Colorado Courts, and John Asher from Colorado Legal Services. Also, thank you for listening to this episode of Stairway to ATJ. Be sure to check out the other CBA podcasts, including Modern Law Revolution, Our Voices, and Gain Legal With It. If you have an access to justice subject you would like us to cover here on the show, please feel free to email us at atjpodcast at cobar.org. I'm Nia Kotnick. Keep climbing, stay curious, and come volunteer with us. And I'm Anthony Pereira. Stay healthy and be good to each other out there. <laughs>